Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. I'm going to read our scripture passage uh, this morning. We just remain in, a, in an attitude of worship as we hear God's word here together. This is Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you were here uh, last week and over the past couple of weeks, uh, I've just been explaining the importance of this book, the book of Genesis, this book that we are studying. Uh, And I've been saying that it's foundational. It's foundational for understanding the Bible and really foundational for understanding all of life. Genesis, the word Genesis uh, means, it comes from the idea of to generate or to begin, um, to start anew. It's the same root word as the word for gene. Uh, And so in in some ways, like Genesis is the DNA uh, of the Bible. And and in every one of these little genes and every one of these uh, little stories, these chapters, even the sentences, they're, they're so pregnant with, with meaning and with value. It's, it's actually a really hard book to preach uh, because I, as I'm studying, as I'm thinking about it, I, I get sidetracked on so many, there's so many different paths that you could, you could go down. Um, it's a fascinating book to study. It's a fascinating book to think about. Um, I was telling somebody this week, even if you don't believe in the authority of scripture, that uh, these words are inspired and given to us by God himself, which of course we believe here. But even if you don't believe that, just the literary value of this book is is amazing. And so there's a lot on display here. Uh, the past couple of weeks, I've been giving five-point uh, sermons, but I've been kind of running long, and I felt really rushed, uh, so I've whittled it down to four. Um, uh, but it, the, the sermon started off with seven points, so be grateful. But um, 
So the first thing that uh, we see, there's, there's five lessons that I want to look at in this passage, and there's so many more, but five lessons that I want us to look at today. The, first of all, the lesson of the offering. Now, when I conceived this sermon series, we actually titled the sermon, I think it's actually titled Death, um, because it's the first death. It's the first case of death, the first time that we read in creation about death. But, but really, you could title this sermon Life. Because it's also the first story of life, life outside the garden. This is the first account we have of what life is like in a fallen world outside of the Garden of Eden. Now, if you study this passage, there's obviously a lot of questions that come up. Just even getting into the passage, one of the things that comes up that should come up is why? Why did God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's offering? What, what was wrong with Cain's offering? Why did God have so much pleasure? It's an interesting question. Another question that I think should come up, rightly comes up, is why did Cain get so angry? Right? Why was he so angry with his brother? An anger that would lead to murder. Well, there's a couple of things you need to understand. If you are here last week, and as we looked at Genesis 3, there was a few really important things that you need to take from that sermon into this sermon. So one of the things that we said is that the result of sin, the result of Adam and Eve stepping outside of the will of God, disobeying the will of God, the result of that sin is they would have to leave the garden, leave the very presence of God. Of course, there was a curse that was put on them as they were leaving God's presence. And it was a, it was a moment where everything felt lost. It was a moment where everything felt that it had been taken from them. But in the middle of this moment, when they are literally receiving a curse from God, when they're being told they have to leave the presence of God, in the middle of this moment, there's, there's one little sliver of bright light. There's one little sliver of hope. And God tells them that they will have an offspring. There will come an offspring that will crush the head of the serpent. And by implication, you could read into this, there will be an offspring that comes that will undo the serpent's work, that will undo this deed that the serpent had done, that will, that will restore them that will bring them back into God's presence, that will bring back the order and the beauty of God's creation. And so you can imagine they're leaving the garden. They know there's the hope of the offspring. There is a lot of anticipation for who this offspring will be, who this head crusher of the serpent will be. And we see the energy uh, here in the first verse of this passage. It says, now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. And she said, Eve said, I've gotten him. I've gotten the man. I've gotten the man with the help of the Lord. And you can feel the energy. Eve, in her mind, I, you can imagine, she's thinking, this is the one. This is what, this is what, Cain's going to get us back home. Cain's going to get us back into the presence of God. He is going to undo the work of the serpent. It's, it's the same kind of energy that we saw last week in chapter 3 when Adam sees Eve and he says, ah, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, at last, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. The offspring has come. And again, people misunderstand Cain. You know, don't read into this story and think, oh, Cain was this bad guy and he was doing all this bad stuff and Cain was this the wild older brother. No. Cain, it should be understood as the, the chosen one. He's the firstborn of the family. In the ancient Near East, this was, this was big. Uh, the hearers of this would have known that 
the idea of the firstborn, uh, the one who would receive all of the inheritance, the one who would receive the, the family land, uh, the one who would take over the family business. And this is what we see happening with Cain. He becomes a worker of the ground, just as his father had done. Cain is the golden-haired boy. Cain is the chosen one. He is the offspring. He is the one that the whole family is hoping. And you can kind of even read it into the text. Look at, look at uh, the very beginning. It says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she brought his brother Abel. Oh, it's like, and there's Abel. Sweet little kid. But Cain. And I don't think I'm reading too much into the text to believe that Cain was probably smarter, he was probably stronger, and he was definitely more favored than his brother. And yet, Abel's offering is chosen. God has regard for Abel's offering. And I just want to say that you see this pattern throughout the Bible. It's always the little brother. <laughs> that finds favor with God. It's always the forgotten one that God chooses. It's, it's always the older son that is passed over. We see this pattern all throughout scripture. It's the younger son that gets the blessing. It's the one of lowly estate, hear this, that God remembers. It's the one who doesn't have a lot of external things going for him to find his identity in. We learn in Hebrews 11 that Abel brought his offering forward in faith. And we get a little bit of a clue as to why God had so much regard for Abel's offering. And he did not have regard for Cain's offering. He brought forth his offering in faith. He brought forth his offering in faith. He brought it for God, trusting in God. It, it's interesting that this scene it's not that they were just out working and showing off or going to market. No, the, the, the whole story is kind of centered around an act of worship. And Abel's is an act of worship. He brought his offering forward with God in mind to please God, in order to make God happy, in order to make God pleased. Of course, as we will learn, Cain did not bring forth his offering in this way. He brought forth his offering with Cain in mind. After all, he was Cain. He was the firstborn. He was the chosen one. He was the guy that was going to make everything right. I'm sure Cain thought, I am the best worker of the field in the whole world, and everyone should recognize me. How dare God not remember me? How dare God not be pleased? Sound familiar to anyone? On the way to school, we go. We have this little family mantra that we go over with the kids. It's just John Kelson and Rihanna. Rainer doesn't go to school yet. He's only two. But uh, on the way to school, we go over this little family mantra, and I encourage the, the kids to pursue. We, we have this, we want to pursue this, we want to pursue that. And so, but the, the last one, the, the final one that we always go over is pursue the pleasure of God today. Pursue the pleasure of God today. Seek to please God. John Kellis, Imriana, Jason. And the reason that's so important is because if you are seeking to find your identity, to find your pleasure in anything else but the pleasure of God, if, you are, if you're seeking to find your identity in anything else, but as one who's loved by God and, and who is seeking to please 
his God or her God, if you're seeking to find your identity in anything else like Cain, like Cain, you'll always be angry. Because all everything else is, is going to let you down. Anything else you're seeking to find your identity in is going to disappoint you. It's going to let you down. It's not going to return as you think it should return. And I've seen this so many times in pastoral ministry, this pattern. They, they, people are finding their identity in something else. They're hoping in something else. Doesn't work out the way they think it should. They get angry. They get bitter. And then what do we see in Cain? Their face falls. They get depressed. If you find your identity in anything other than pleasing God, you'll always be angry and your face will always fall. Because everything is going to let, everything lets you down. Everything disappoints you. I mean, why couldn't Cain just be happy for Abel? Kid brother, I'm sure he taught him a few things. He said, you know what, hey, Hey, little guy, you're doing good, Abel. No, because the sacrifice wasn't about God. It was about him. It was about his accolade. It was about his worth. I'm Cain. I've worked hard. I've done what I'm supposed to do. I've done everything right. I deserve better than this. I've worked harder. I'm better than Abel. And so in his anger, if God wasn't going to accept, if God was going to accept Abel and not Cain, and Cain only had one choice. I got to get rid of Abel. You know, and this wasn't some emotional blow up, right? So don't read this wrong to say, you know, in a fit of fury, Cain killed his brother. No, this is planned. This is thought. You know, verse 8, actually, in some translations, it says, come, brother, let's go out into the field. I've got something to show you out here, brother. Oh, Cain had a plan. He knew the field. He was a worker of the field. He knew right where he could go. He knew right what he could do. He knew right where he could hide the body. I mean, just, just hear this. You'll always be angry if you're trusting in something other than God. If you're trusting in how special you are, how talented you are. You'll always be angry. You'll always be scheming against your brother, right? You'll never be happy for other people when God blesses them. You'll always be putting them down. You'll always give them a comment with a but. Yeah, well, they're nice buts. I'd be nice too if I'm. You'll always be looking to slap them in the back of the head somehow. You'll always be angry. And eventually, I want you to hear this, you'll be angry with God. Eventually, not only will you kill your brother, you'll kill God too. And I've seen this over and over again. People get angry, their face falls. They're angry at other people, and they lose their faith. But notice how gracious God is. God doesn't go to Cain and say, who do you think you are? You're little Cain. I made you. How dare you get angry at me? I love how gracious God is. That's not what God does. That's not God's character. It should be. God would be just to do that. But he doesn't. He comes to Cain. He begins to question him. He, and, and, and then he encourages him. He says, Cain, look, look, you can do this, Cain. Don't, don't let your face fall. Don't be angry. No, you, you can do this. If you do well, you'll be accepted. And then God even graciously gives Cain a warning. But look, Cain, please, watch out right now. Watch out. Because if you do not do well, please be aware of this, Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. You must rule over it because its desire is to take you out, which 
brings me to the second point, which is the rule of the door. The rule of the door. We talked about the rule of the offering. The rule of the door. One commentator said that if Genesis 3 is about Satan leading people to sin, then Genesis 4 is about the problem of the self. Please hear this. Friends that are here today, members of Christ's covenant, visitors that have come, this is true for all of you. Sin is creeping outside your door. Sin is crouching, as the text says, outside your door. And what God is saying to Cain and what I am saying to you is watch out. Its desire is to have you. Its desire is to take you out. And as God says here, you, you, must, you must rule over it. To quote John Owen, the famous Puritan, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. This is Genesis 4, 7. Its desire is for you. Its desire is to rule over you. You must rule over it. Watch out. It's crouching right outside the door. You know, you hear these stories of people have, falling into these sin that just destroys their lives. I mean, sin that just humiliates them, humiliates their family, destroys their life, separates us from God. You know, you hear about the, the woman who, who runs away from her husband, cheats on her husband, just destroys her family, destroys, you know, her relationship with her husband, with her children, with friends. You hear of the guy that steals a bunch of money somehow. You know, this week, actually, there's a very, very sad story. James McDonald's, a guy that I have learned a lot from, I've gleaned a lot from as a pastor in Chicago. He got fired from his church for a burst of outrage. And, and, and you know, anytime that happens, anytime these big things happen, it doesn't start there. Because that's the way sin is like. It always hides. It's always subtle. It always says to you, I am not that big of a deal. Go on. I'm I'll be right here by the door. You go on. I'm not that big of a deal. I'm not that big of a deal. Sin always hides. It always has a way of disguising itself. I'm not cheating on my wife. I'm just, I'm just having a little fun with the girls in the office. After all, I'm a nice guy. In fact, sin does that. It actually has a way of disguising itself as something good. I'm not a gossip. I'm just concerned about my friends. I'm very concerned. You know, I'm not a workaholic. I just am a very productive person. But look, sin crouches. What does that mean? It, it, it's not that sin's just sitting down. Sin is crouching down. It's waiting for the right moment. Its desire is for you. It wants to kill you. And when you're angry, and when you're sad, and when you've been let down, and when you're lonely, that's when sin will pounce. And it's subtle at first, but if you start feeding it, it will grow. And then, hear this, you'll lose your ability to say no to it. You get caught in it. You think you're the master of it, and then it becomes the master of you. I talk to people all the time, and this is the case. People that maybe, for example, struggle with pornography. It's, at first, it starts off, it's just a diversion. It's a little diversion. And then all of a sudden, they come to their senses, but they can't stop. They're addicted. Their mind has been altered. This, this thing that they thought they had so much control of now has control of them. In fact, I was on a, uh, had a conversation with a guy a few weeks ago who had an affair. And, and now he's been caught, and now it has come out. But he got into this thing, and, and as bad as it was, he got into this thing. And then as he was going along with it, he had a moment of clarity. He had a moment of clarity. He realized, i got to stop. <laughs> this is wrong. This is not healthy. 
but he couldn't stop it. He said at that point, he was telling me at that point, the girl was emotionally dependent on him that he was having this affair with. And he said, I couldn't just leave her and then she might tell. And he just got stuck. That's what sin always does. Greed does this, right? Greed always starts off small. And then and you think you have control of it. And then it gets in control of you. And you have no control of your money. And you're working for these things that you were greedy for. Greed is so subtle like that too. I want to give you all that warning. People rarely confess greed. There's this interesting passage in the New Testament where Jesus is talking about money, and he says, look, if the eye goes bad, then there's no light for the whole house to see. And I just want to warn you of that. You know, you, there are a lot of people in this room probably that will spend all of your money, all the resources, enormous resources, just on yourself the rest of your life. You'll do nothing for the kingdom. You'll do nothing for God because greed creeps in, and it gets you, and it gets control of your life, and you find your identity, and how much you have and on what you're spending your money on. The point is, is this is the way sin always works. It starts so soft, it starts so subtle, and it creeps and it creeps and it creeps. Sin is crouching. And eventually, it destroys your will against it. There's a famous American theologian named G.T. Shedd. He says this, sin is the slow and sure and eternal suicide of the human the more and more you give their, yourself to sin, the more and more it rules over you, and eventually you're, you're totally controlled by it. You know, I don't agree with everything C.S. Lewis writes about hell. In fact, I, a lot of his things I don't agree with. But one thing I do is hell is the place where your will is given over to your sin. You're totally given over your sin. There's no barrier. You're totally given over to the desires of sin. It's a total disorder of what God has designed. Hell is where everyone is fully ruled by their sin and ultimately, of course, destroyed by it. Sin is crouching. It wants to have you. You must rule over it. So what does that mean? Let's talk about that. How do you rule over it? Well, it means many things. There's a really helpful book on this. It's an old book called On the Mortification of Sin. It's by John Owen. And it's a, there's a lot in the book, but there's two kind of main points, okay? Mortification and then this word vivification. And I'll, I'll talk about what those things mean. So mortification. On the, on the mortification side, again, I'm giving the synopsis of this very long book in like 20 seconds. But if you want to kill sin in your life, if you want to be killing sin so that sin won't kill you, well, what does that mean? Well, how do you kill anything? How do you kill something? You take away its power. You, 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 know, you, you, you make it so it has no power. You, you uh, um, exhaust its power. That's how you kill something. That's what it means to kill something. So if you think about sin in your life, lust, greed, jealousy, in order to kill those sins, you have to take away their power. And here's two things to keep in mind. Sin gets power in the darkness, <laughs> and sin grows when it's fed. Sin gets power in the darkness, and sin grows when it is fed. So sin gets power in the darkness. If you want to kill sin in your life, I'm just telling you, if there's a persisting sin, if, if God and his grace, and I'm saying you, it is grace, is convicting you right now in this room, that is God's grace to you, okay? You should be grateful for that because this room is a safe and merciful place of grace and forgiveness. Not so will be the judgment seat of God. And so if God in his grace is, is convicting you right now, repent of your sin, and here's a way to kill sin, confess it. 
Sin only grows in the darkness. If you want to kill whatever the persisting sin is in your life, confess it. Let it be known. Shine light on it. Find people that you love and trust that are for you, that will pray for you and confess your sin to them. And and I just want to say this. I've been a pastor for 15 years. I've been a Christian longer than that. Whenever I've seen this, whenever I've seen people regularly confessing their sin with a group of people that love them, that sin does not grow in their life. It's not that that struggle immediately goes away as soon as you confess it, but it, sin only grows in the dark. You want to keep it at bay and you want to begin killing sin, confess sin. Look, listen, here, listen to the passage. Sin is crouching at your door. You know what that means? It's hard to see sometimes. It's hiding. And so you know, you know what you need? You know what I need? You need people around you that know you, that love you, that are outside of your house that can say, hey, be careful when you walk out today. There's a sin right there about to pounce you. You need one another. You need community. Do you have this in your life? Do you have people that you can confess sin with, that you can shine light on your sin with? Sin only grows in the darkness. And then I want you to hear this. Sin only gets power when you feed it. Sin only gets power when you feed it. So, so hear this. Again, you want to kill sin, you got to take away its power. Sin only gets power when you feed it. So, for example, if you have the sin of lust in your life, and if it leads to, let's say, pornography use, and you've been trying to fight that, I would propose to you, you don't need to be watching any movie with sexually explicit content. Now, you know, there are some Christians that that's just not a controlling sin in their life, and they can filter those things. And so I'm not making a legalistic rule here, but I'm just saying if, if you know your heart and you know this sin is pervasive, don't feed it at all. Guard your heart. Guard your eyes. Guard your mind against these things. Don't feed it. If you struggle with jealousy, for example, if jealousy is a big part of your life, you find yourself being jealous of other people and envious of other people, you need to delete Instagram, okay? Because everybody on Instagram only posts awesome stuff, and that's great. You know, I'm not telling you to post sad stuff on Instagram. Nobody nobody wants to see sad stuff on Instagram. You know, I've been seeing this thing where people have, like, honest posts on Instagram. It's like, well, you're going to get unfollowed really quick, you know? No, everybody likes to see but if you struggle with jealousy, if you struggle with jealousy, know you're a hard enough to say, you know what, I, I just don't, this is not something, this is going to feed sin in my life. This is going to feed something in my life. That, that's the point. Know your heart well enough to know what, what's being fed in your life and what's growing in your life. Be killing sin. Sin only grows in the darkness, so shine light on it. Sin only grows when it's fed, so don't feed it. Starve it out. But Owen did. Owen said, it's not only the mortification of sin, it's also the vivification of righteousness, the, putting on the new man, bringing out new spiritual life. It's not only putting off the old man, but putting on the new man. How do you replace the sin in your life? You know what Cain should have done when God came to him and said, do well? You know what he should have done? He should have done well. He should have gone to the garden. He should have gotten back to work. He should have put his energy where God wanted him to put his energy energy, and that would have healed him, and that would have cured the anger in his heart, but he didn't do that. If you want to kill the sin in your life, what are you replacing it with? What are you, how are you creating spiritual growth in your life? If you struggle with pride, pursue humility. Do something that you think is humiliating. Do something that you think is beneath you. Go serve without anyone knowing about it. Go do the worst job. 
that you know, and you can even go into it with the attitude, I know I'm better than this. That's okay. Go do it. And God will work on you. That's called pursuing humility. Pursuing humility doesn't mean you're humble as, you know, you don't have to be humble to pursue humility. You have to you get humble by pursuing humility. If you're, um, if you're greedy, if you know there's greed in your heart, go give money away. And don't tell anybody you did. Go be generous. If you are filling your mind with unholy things, if that's a habitual habit of your life, then, then, then get some accountability and read your Bible. Fill your mind with what is good. Listen to sermon podcasts. Listen to, there's so many resources out there. Mortification and vivification. Sin, its desire is for you. It is crouching at your door. It will kill you. So be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And I just want you to hear this. Its consequences are real. Which brings me to the third lesson, the lesson of Eden. The lesson of Eden, the imagery in the first, I mean in the whole Bible, but in the first few chapters of Genesis is fascinating. Jim Hamilton talks about this in his big book, God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment. But of course, Hamilton talks about how the whole world is God's temple. So what do you see in a temple? You see the outer courts of the temple. Then you have the holy place of the temple. And then inside the holy place of the temple, you have the most holy place, so the holy of holies, right? And then in the creation, what do you have? You have a garden in the middle of Eden, in the middle of or amongst the other dry lands of the world. So there's, there's an imagery that, that Hamilton is helpful. He says, look, the, what we're seeing in the earth is temple imagery. God is creating a temple. He's creating a place where his glory would dwell. And it's interesting, at the first part of the Bible, in, in Genesis 1, 2, 3, the man and the woman are in the garden in Eden among the other dry lands. And they're interacting with God. God is moving among them. God is walking among them in the cool of Eden. There's a, there's a sense of interaction. There's a sense where they are in the place that God is. But what do we read at the end of chapter 3 after Adam and Eve sin? They have to leave the garden. Now, now we're in chapter 4. We're still in Eden. We're not in the garden. We're still in Eden. We can't get to the tree of life. But you still hear the voice of the Lord. It talks about God in a different way. He's not as interactive. He's not as present. He's not walking in the cool of the evening. He's talking. We're still hearing the voice of the Lord. But what happens at the end of this chapter? Cain has to leave Eden away from the presence of the Lord and go out in the land of Nod, which means the wandering land the place that is far from the holy place of God. Don't you see what's happening here? As sin among the people is growing, they are getting further and further and further away from the presence of God, further and further away from the temple, further and further away from the holy place. And this is what always happens with sin. I want you to realize this. There is a consequence for your sin. Sin separates you from God. Sin. Think of all that Cain lost here. He lost his brother. He lost his relationship with his parents. He lost his home. He lost his relationship with God. And why? Why? Because he wouldn't submit to God's control. He wouldn't submit to God's rule. And, and the question is, are, are you? Are you listening to God's voice? I mean, you're here, and I'm so glad you're here. And, and the point of this whole worship service is so that God in his power could speak to us through his word. Are you listening to his word? You know the climax of this story? You know the, the turning point of this story? Is when God comes to Cain and he says, do well. Do well. Cain right there. I mean, that's where it turns. Cain could have listened. 
And if he would have just listened, his brother with Abel would have been restored. His brother with his, par- his relationship with his parents would have been restored. His relationship with God would have been healed. His work would have been blessed. If he would have just listened to God, but he doesn't listen. Because he can't stand what God told him. What he wanted God to say is, you know what, Cain, really your offering was better. You know what, I was wrong. You're right, Cain. I should have listened to you. And that's the same attitude that a lot of us take to God. Where we say, you should listen to me. I know what's best. And my question to you is, do you, do you even, do you believe in a God that disagrees with you? If your God dis, just agrees with you all the time, then you don't have a God. You have an idol. Everybody believes in a God that does what they say. Everybody believes in that God. That God's awesome. But the real God is more awesome because he's wiser than we are. He's the sovereign God of the universe who reigns over all. And he'll disagree with you sometime because he knows better than you. His ways are more right and pure than yours. Do you believe in that God? R.C. Sproul one time was commenting on this debate. It, it took place between David Frost, who was a Christian, Madeline Marie O'Hare, who was an atheist. Madeline Marie O'Hare, I've mentioned her. She's the, the lady kind of responsible for getting prayer out of the school. She did all these famous debates. And she was debating this David Frost guy. This is, I think, in the 60s or 70s. And she was winning the debate. Frost was losing the debate. And, and at one moment, Frost get, got frustrated. And so he just turned to the audience and he said, who here believes in God? And of course, most everybody, there, their hands went up. And that was his big argument. And I said, see? And of course, Madeline Marie O'Hare dismissed it and said, well, these people are stupid. They don't know anything. But R.C. Sproul later was commenting on this. And he said, you know, O'Hare missed an opportunity. Instead of writing the studio audience off, she should have turned to them and said, Who here believes in a God that destroyed the whole world in a flood? Who here believes in a God that in his righteousness sends people who deny him and sin against him to eternal hell? Who here believes in a God that sent his own son to be a man to live in an obscure village? And if you believe and receive him, then you have life. And if you reject him, you have death. Who here believes in a God that wants complete control of your life? And Sproul said, had O'Hare said that, many if not most of the hands would have come down. So the same question is that to you. We we all like little idols that we can create to form God into whatever image we choose. But do you believe in the real God, the true God, who wants control of your life, who wants to change your life, who wants you to be conformed into his image And you know, all of us at one point or another have been like Cain, angry with our situation, angry with our brother, angry with God. And if you're that way right now, the question is, will you listen to him? Will you listen to him now? Will you turn? Will you repent? Which brings me to the final point, which is the lesson of the blood. Looked at the lesson of the offering, the lesson of the door, the lesson of Eden. What about the lesson of the blood? I can almost imagine Cain feverishly working to bury his brother out in the field. And then I can imagine him going down to the creek and feverishly scrubbing his hands to get rid of the blood, to get rid of the blood, to get rid of the evidence. Maybe they'll think that Abel just wandered off 
out into the land of Nod, and we don't know where he went. We, we, sorry, Mom. Sorry, Dad. I don't know what happened to Abel. I tried to be his keeper, but he got away. But Cain couldn't hide from Abel's blood, no matter how hard he buried and how hard he scrubbed. Because God comes to Cain with this amazing and haunting and eerie message. He says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to God. You see, blood always cries out for justice. You know, sin always cries out to God for justice. God is the great justifier. He will make everything right. There is no sin. You know, something happened this week. And I was so mad. I was talking to Paige about this. And I wanted to take recourse. And it was just one of these situations where I said, you know what, I'm just going to have to let God take recourse on this. But I know that he will. I know that he will. Justice is always settled in God's courtroom. And as much as we try to hide our sin, as much as we try to cover our sin with good deed, it cries out. It cries out to God. Sin always cries out to God. Your brother's blood is calling out to me, says God. Abel, who had come to God with this sweet faith, this sweet faith, bringing the best he had to please God, had been killed. And now his blood had a message. It was a message of justice from which Cain could not hide. And just like Cain, we have like Cain, we bury our sin. We try to cover it. We try to cover it with good deeds. We try to get it away so no one will see it. But it cries out still to God who knows all. But I want you to hear this. The good news for you and for me today is that this story doesn't end with Abel and his blood crying out. Later on, another Abel would come, a better Abel, who like Abel lived in faith, but, but total faith. Everything this new Abel did, he did trusting in God, obeying God, seeking to please God. And you know what happened to the new Abel? The older brother got a hold of him. The Pharisee, the guy that did everything right, the guy that wanted the accolade, the guy that couldn't stand that people were paying, paying attention to, to Abel or to Jesus and not to them. Of course, Jesus, this newer and better Abel, became a threat to their position. And so these Pharisees, these religious leaders, what do they do? They took him out into a field. <laughs> they took him outside the city, and they killed him. But I want you to hear this. This Abel, this better Abel, also has blood that cries out. But the author of Hebrews tells us this amazing passage in Hebrews 12, 24. The blood of Jesus cries out with a better word than Abel. His blood cries out with a sweeter word than the blood of Abel. His blood cries out with a more gracious, some translations say, with a more gracious word than the word of Abel. Abel's blood cries out for justice. And all of us, like Cain, covered in the blood of our sin, covered in the guilt of our sin, deserve justice. But there is blood that cries out with a sweeter voice. And you see, by this Abel, this better Abel, this Jesus, his, God's justice has been satisfied. The blood that he shed that cries out was not blood shed because of anything that he had done. 
It was blood that he shed on our behalf. He lived in perfect righteousness, but was willing to become our unrighteousness and shed blood in our place so that the justice of God in him could be totally satisfied. And he overcame death in the power of his resurrection. And in his resurrection, he calls all who believe in him to life. You see, this blood cries out here, this church, this blood cries out with a sweeter voice, a sweeter word, not a word of condemnation, a word of forgiveness, a word of grace, a word of life. If you look to Jesus, if you look to Jesus in him, the justice that we deserve has been satisfied and grace has been freely given. He is a better able Are you sprinkled with this blood, though? Have you trusted in this blood? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Are you looking to him? Have you experienced this righteousness, this goodness, this forgiveness that comes in Christ? And people say, well, how do we do do that? What does that mean? You know, what does it mean to, like, look to Jesus and be forgiven? I had a, uh, a meeting this week with some guys. It was an Atlanta United preseason soccer rally thing. I'm not really a soccer fan, but I went because I like the guys and I want to be a soccer fan. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I went and you know what you know what we all said at the thing and we all said at the uh, rally? We said, how are we going to defend our title? Now, Yosef Martinez wasn't there. In fact, none of the players were there, right? All right? None of the guys were there. It was just a bunch of, like, guys like me. I don't even really know how to play soccer. And I'm saying, how are we going to defend? <laughs> Nobody comes into my house and kicks the ball in my goal, you know. How are we going to defend our title? What? What that helps us understand is being a fan of something helps us understand what it means to have a vicarious identity in something else, okay? And when it, if I put my faith in Atlanta United, and, and I'm a fan of Atlanta United this year, and I trust them, you know what? If we win the championship, then I win. I win with them. And if the New York Red Bulls win, we lose. This is, this is what I'm talking about. This is what it means to have faith in Jesus. It's to believe that there is one who really has come on your behalf, who really has died before God, the God of the universe, on your behalf, and to place your hopes and dreams for your life in him and in nothing else, in nothing else. You you really can't be a fan of two teams here. You're either going to trust money to make you happy or you're going to trust God and Christ and the story of salvation to make you happy. You're going to trust in your righteousness. You're going to go before God with your righteousness someday. Or you're going to go before God trusting in the righteousness of Christ. You're going to go before God one day trusting in your accolades and your good reputation. Or you're going to go trusting in Christ. This is what it means. Have you gone in with Jesus? Have you believed in this better able? Is your identity with him? And if it is, and if you're sprinkled by his blood, there's forgiveness, there's life, there's hope. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the better able that has come, whose blood cries out to you, forgiveness, life, healing, hope. 
Father, I pray that today all of us would find their identity in him, our hope for overcoming sin in him. He's our only hope, our hope for life and joy in him. Father, convict us, but then restore us by faith. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.